It's August 15, 2018. For nearly three days, pregnant Shannon Watts and her two little girls, Bella and Celeste, have been missing from their small town Colorado home. The case has already captured nationwide attention. Not only has a beautiful wife and her children vanished into thin air, but the good-looking patriarch of the family, Chris Watts, well, he just isn't acting the way you would think a distraught husband and father would under the circumstances. Up to this point, all police had to go on was a feeling. A feeling that this father wasn't frantic, wasn't crying. He just didn't seem worried. You have to allow for individual differences when people are in crisis. But there is certainly a range. A range of human behavior, a range of human emotion that you expect when someone's family, their loved ones, those that they should be heavily invested in, are in danger or are missing. And he just didn't seem to be anywhere on the continuum of what one would expect, even allowing for individual differences. We talked last episode about how both police and the media almost immediately turned their focus towards Chris, and it's easy to see why. Between his suspicious actions leading up to and following his family's disappearance, as well as his seemingly cold behavior, Chris fit all the criteria for a prime suspect. Add to that the fact that when you look at statistics in this kind of case, over 90% of the time, it turns out to be the spouse. So there is a huge pile of mounting evidence that's causing police and media to take a long and hard look at Chris Watts. But now, Chris had agreed to take a polygraph test for police. He did. And really, to no one's surprise, he had failed. It seemed like the moment of truth was about to come. Police were finally closing in on Chris. He was in the interrogation room. He had failed a lie detector test. There was no more running away. There was nowhere to run. Investigators were on the edge of their seats, ready to pounce. They knew the man across from them knew more than he was saying about the disappearance of his family. And they wanted to hear it. They wanted to know what happened and they wanted to know it now because there was that small hope, that sliver of optimism that maybe, just maybe, against all odds, they were still alive. Chris Watts, who on the outside seemed like the perfect husband and father, was about to be exposed as anything but. You're listening to The Devil Beside Me, the Chris Watts story, husband, father, killer. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, 
it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. The plot was about to thicken. Police knew they were teetering on the edge of something big. They wanted a confession, and they knew they were close to getting one. But first, Chris would reveal something so damning that it 100% confirmed to investigators that they were on the right track. What was it? You guessed it. A secret mistress was waiting in the wings, and Chris had been promising and planning to start a new life with her. I'm not much on coincidence to begin with, but even if I was, when I was following this story, this was way outside the bounds of anyone that tended to believe in coincidence. But this affair, could this be the nail in his coffin? Was this motive? Did Chris's new love cause him to want to get rid of his old one and do so at any cost? Was he narcissistic enough to believe that if he just wiped the slate clean, he could start fresh? No complications of divorce, no child support, no problems. If he could just get rid of everybody, he could just start over fresh. Chris told police he had met another woman at work who he admitted had, quote, taken his breath away. So now Chris has not only failed a polygraph test that directly asked him if he was physically involved in Shannon's disappearance and if he knew her current whereabouts. He also handed police a giant clue on a silver platter that he had been carrying on an extramarital affair. So why did Chris offer this information up? Well, some speculated it was because he knew it would only be a matter of time before his affair came to light, though he thought, hey, I'm better off to bring this up on my own. Or maybe he was trying to buy himself some time. I mean, after all, he had just failed a polygraph about his missing wife and daughters. Maybe he was trying to divert attention away from the more important matter, the whereabouts of his family, and get them to look at the salacious detail of an extramarital affair. Think about it. When O.J. went on trial, what did the prosecution open up with? Did they open up with hard and fast facts about the murder. No. They opened up with circumstantial evidence about the fact that he wasn't a good husband. They sacrificed primacy with the jury because, you see, the prosecution gets to go first. Now, think about when you were a kid and you and your siblings were playing and somebody knocked over a lamp. What came to your mind first. Get to mama before anybody else, because the first one to tell the story was writing on a blank slate. If you got to mama before they did and got to tell your story before they did, you had a much better chance of being believed and getting out of trouble. And when you look at what happened in the OJ case, if they had had hard and fast evidence about his murderous behavior, they would have talked about that, but they didn't. They talked about the fact that he wasn't a good husband. So maybe without realizing what he was doing, Chris was saying, look, if I can get them talking about the fact that I'm not a good husband, if I can get them talking about the fact that I'm having an affair, if I can get them talking about that, that will give me time to do a better job of covering my tracks. 
Maybe he wanted to move the bodies. Maybe he wanted to do something to create more of a maze because he was narcissistic enough to believe that his story, what he had been telling himself, was going to sell better than it actually did. Because you've heard me say, your story goes a whole lot better when you're the only one telling it. But when people start asking questions, even a narcissist figures out pretty quick, yeah, this isn't going over quite like it was when I was telling it to myself in the car. So maybe he was buying time. Investigators didn't go for the deflection. They tried to guide Chris back to their main priority, locating Shannon and the girls and locating them right now. But despite them putting the pressure on him for answers, Chris still maintained that they were at the house when he left and that he had no clue what could have happened to them. Police knew that the only way Shannon and her girls could have left that house on August 13th was in Chris's car. No one had been seen leaving the house that day except for Chris. And we know that because it was captured on a neighbor's surveillance camera that just overshot their property and just caught the driveway, the garage, the traffic pattern of the cars at the Watts residence. Eventually, after hours of questioning that seemed to go nowhere, Chris asked to speak to his father, Ronnie. Now, let's think about that and put it in context for a minute. As I said, Chris naively, narcissistically, and immaturely seemed to believe if he could just wipe the slate clean, nobody would ask any questions. Just one week they would be there, next week he would move somebody else in, and everybody would just go, oh, well, okay. That's how a narcissist thinks. They look at it from their point of view and their point of view only. That's how immature and emotionally underdeveloped Chris Watts was. So it was no surprise when a grown man says, I want to speak to my daddy. Just like a kid getting in trouble, I want my mommy. But here it wasn't when I want my mommy, it was I want my daddy. The wheels were coming off and they were coming off fast and he was immature and his coping mechanisms were cratering fast. And he said, I want my daddy. He said he was ready to share his story, but he wanted daddy there because daddy would make everything okay. They were more than happy to oblige. His dad entered the room and every word was captured on video surveillance in the police squad room where there is no expectation of privacy. This would be Chris Watts' first confession but it would be far from his last. The story Chris told, he admitted he had killed his pregnant wife, Shannon, but he claimed he only did it in a fit of passion because he was enraged when he discovered that she had murdered their daughters. Let's just take a listen to what Chris initially confessed to his father. Listen carefully to how he tries to walk a careful line of saying, yes, I killed her, but it was the moral high ground. This was a moral high ground act. So really, I was doing an understandable thing. 
Listen to how he tries to keep one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. She heard him? Yeah. Probably because she's a mother. Marks open. I didn't hear anything. When I was downstairs, they came back up and they were gone. I freaked out. This confession with all the window dressing was a stunning account. Why would a pregnant woman just choke the life out of her own two children? Everyone who knew Shannon said she was a wonderful mother who doted on her little girls and could not wait for the birth of their first son. Why, in God's name, would she strangle them just out of the blue. Nobody could figure that out. And you want to know why? Because you cannot make sense out of nonsense. According to Chris, he claimed that shortly after Shannon had returned home from her business trip, he fought with her about their marriage and ultimately told Shannon he wanted a divorce, then stormed downstairs. When Chris returned upstairs, he said he saw his daughter Bella blue in the face on their bed, dead. Then he saw his pregnant wife, Shannon, brutally strangling their daughter, Celeste. Let me talk a little bit about why he would choose this particular fabrication. Remember, this is an immature, malignant narcissist. 
I'm just giving you my opinion here. This is how I suss this guy out. This is an immature, malignant narcissist. When I use that term, I'm using it in a clinical sense. And I'm not diagnosing him here. I'm using this in a descriptive way. But to give you some insight, the diagnosis is narcissistic personality disorder. And this is considered to be a pervasive pattern of grandiosity. Grandiosity in fantasy or behavior which means it's hugely embellished. It's on a grand scale. Everything is blown out of proportion. They have a need for admiration, a lack of empathy, meaning an absence of feeling for other people. And there is a grandiose sense of self-importance where they exaggerate their achievements and talents. These people are preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, ideal love. These people tend to believe that they're special and unique and can only be understood or should associate with special or high-status people. They just have this need for excessive admiration, and they have this huge sense of entitlement. This, it's just an unreasonable expectation of especially favorable treatment with automatic compliance with their expectations. Now, what that means is they just have this automatic expectation that when they say something, people are just going to blindly believe them. And they're oblivious to how something is playing in the room. A narcissist might be trying to con everybody in the room. They're oblivious to how many people in the room are rolling their eyes and going, oh, brother, are you kidding me? But this sense of entitlement, they expect people to believe them. They are interpersonally exploitive. They're arrogant and haughty. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. When he makes up a fantasy about this, he has to be the hero. It can't just be, she killed the children, isn't that horrible? No, no, he's got to be the hero. He's got to be Superman. He's got to come up the stairs and catch her in the act and get revenge where he will be cheered on, that everybody says, I totally get that. Any man worth his salt would exact revenge on any woman that dare kill his children. They will applaud him. They will cheer him on. They will say, good for you. He constructs this in his mind that he's going to be the hero. It's not just enough to say she did it. He has to put a role in it for himself. where he was the one that brought her to justice. He was the one that balanced the scales. So first, it's just his family's missing and he has nothing to do with it. He's just innocent, he wants them back. That's not enough because he takes the polygraph exam and he really actually thinks he can con himself through it. But of course he fails. He had the expectation that he could because he lives in a fantasy world. But now when the walls are closing in and it's apparent that he knows more than he said, he has to construct this hero role for himself where he's the one that's coming in as the arbiter of justice. I said that he lacked empathy. Can you imagine what it did to her parents for the entire world to hear this man say that their daughter 
murdered her children. Can you imagine what that did to those people? I'm talking about Sandy and Frank. Now, I've sat down with those people and talked to them in an exclusive interview. First time they talked about this, I saw the pain in their eyes. And anyone would know that there would be pain if somebody exacted those kind of allegations. But if you don't have empathy, you don't even think about that. Not only had this man murdered their daughter, but now he murders her reputation. He had blamed her and accused her of the unthinkable, a horrible act that they knew, Sandy and Frank knew, she would never do. This case may have turned into tabloid fodder with headlines about a monster husband, but we have to remember these are real families whose lives were destroyed. When I sat down with Shannon's family, one of the most moving moments was when her mother recounted the moment she says she actually physically felt her daughter pass in the most spiritual yet physical way. Dr. Phil, I felt my daughter's spirit go through my forehead the moment she died. And I woke up, and when I, I was just, something woke me up, and I sat at the foot of, you know, sat up, and a spear went through my forehead, and I, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, Shannon. And I said, holy shit, something happened to my daughter. I knew, I swear to God, I knew. Mm-hmm. I woke up Frankie, I woke up the whole house, I said, something's wrong with Shannon. I'm telling you something's wrong, and, and she's never left my side since she's passed. Right from the start, investigators weren't buying what Chris was selling, but they hoped that little by little they could continue to chip away at his lies and finally find the truth. While this case was taking on a life of its own, at this point, the Frederick County Police Department's main priority was still to locate Shannon and her daughters, then get to the bottom of what had actually happened to them. During Chris's riveting conversation with his father, he finally divulged where they were. They'd been looking for three days, and he had known where they were the entire time because he had put them there. Now, we're ultimately going to find out that his truth had versions. And there aren't versions of the truth. There's just the truth. But Chris had versions of the truth. And his current version was that in the early morning hours of August 14th, he loaded the lifeless bodies of his wife and two girls into his pickup truck and drove off just as police had suspected. There was never any scheduled play date for the girls, as Chris had previously stated. When the surveillance video caught Chris's truck pulling out of his garage, the bodies of his wife and children, according to him during this version, were hidden on the floor out of sight. And he reportedly drove them to a work site, an oil field. Chris said he did this because he was, quote, in a panic and didn't know what else to do. 
Investigators had already been suspicious of the area. The isolated land showed freshly disturbed earth. A bed sheet was also found at the site that matched the sheet and pillowcase that were found in the trash at the Watts family home. Chris was shown an aerial photo of the oil field by investigators, and he identified exactly where he had concealed his wife and children's bodies. I think about the officers at the scene. It had to be chilling. The photos and video footage of the site, well, they're just haunting. Aside from the two massive oil holding tanks, there is nothing but dusty earth and weeds. And they just seem to stretch out endlessly. It's a desolate place. And it's a horrifying thought that someone would callously dispose of their family's bodies in this makeshift grave. When we think about it, when you say it real fast, you talk about bodies and graves, it doesn't really do justice to it. Because you're talking about a man that buried a woman that he had children with, that he had laid in bed with, that he had held in his arms, that he had had dinner with, talked about sharing their lives together. Little did she know that this man with whom she shared dreams, created children with, would one day murder her and bury her in a shallow grave at a desolate oil site. It's almost impossible to even wrap your head around. And that was her. The two little girls, three-year-old Celeste and four-year-old Bella, well, he had a special degree of evil for them. He had put their bodies in two side-by-side -side oil tanks. And the little girl's bodies had been submerged in this horrible crude oil for days. It was a horrible fate that no one deserves. Because the children were in oil tanks, the recovery process was dangerous. This required specialists coming in. The retrieval process of the little girls was intense and lengthy. The autopsy showed Bella and Celeste were smothered. Oil was found inside their stomachs from being submerged in the massive tanks. According to the report, Bella showed signs of having fought back and bit her tongue while she was being smothered. Shannon was strangled and had signs of purple-black bruising on her neck as well as possible abrasions going up the left side of her face. Chris might have tried to pin the murders of Bella and Celeste on Shannon, but the autopsy report didn't necessarily support this story. Physically, it just did not seem likely that Shannon, in her second trimester, 
would have had the physical means to carry out these murders, let alone the emotional capability, and we do know that she was not constitutionally strong. She was not constitutionally well. What haunts me to this day is what Shannon's mother told me. I think if I live another hundred years, I'll never be able to unhear it. She told me that Bella and Celeste's bodies were so saturated in oil that they could not fly the children's bodies' homes to be buried because there was too much danger of them spontaneously igniting and creating an explosion that could bring an airliner down. He said it was just too risky. That's how saturated those poor children's bodies were. Shannon's family also insisted that there was no way that Shannon would have snapped and murdered her daughters while carrying her son. Even if Chris had told her he wanted a divorce, Shannon's mother Sandy said this just would never have been an option for her daughter. But it's see, like, Dr. Phil, no Shannon would have packed his bags and helped him on his way out the door. Yeah. She wouldn't have, you know, had a hissy fit or anything yeah. like that or cried. She wanted to leave. You know, she'd be upset, but she'd get over it real quick. I mean, yeah, don't let she's a survivor. That's right. Yeah. It didn't make sense for Chris to depict Shannon as the family annihilator. That explanation defies logic. If you killed your wife because she killed your beloved children, why would you hide them in an oil field? As I said, he had constructed this such that he was the hero in the situation. He had to shove those little girls so hard to fit in the opening of the tanks that their little bones were broken and some of their skin was removed. Who would ever, ever do that to their own children's bodies? And then hours later, stand in their driveway with their sunglasses on their head in flip-flops, rocking back and forth with a smug look on their face, saying, gee, I don't know what happened. I don't know where it play date, I guess. That takes a special kind of demented, cold-blooded killer. While the horror of this discovery swept the nation on August 15th at 11.30 p.m., Chris Watts, was arrested on suspicion of three counts of first-degree murder. As friends and family mourned the senseless death of Shannon, Bella, and Celeste, detectives turned their focus to Chris's motive and what had actually happened that fateful day in August. They knew they didn't have the whole story. So far, they knew that his constantly changing story was enough to give them whiplash. And behind his rugged good looks and all-American passive nice guy image, they suspected was a sinister master manipulator 
who was anything but your average Joe suburban dad. And they knew he was carrying on a secret affair. Hedonism at its absolute worst. Police were about to dig deeper, and they started with Chris's mistress, Nicole Kessinger. Police were eager to hear the pretty brunette's account of what happened between her and Chris, and she delivered. All of the press coverage of the case convinced Nicole that she had no choice but to go to the police, and when she did, she sang like a canary. She either figured out or somebody told her, you better get in front of this and you better get in front of it right now. Because if they have to come looking for you, if they think you're complicit in this, if they think you're withholding information, if they think you are obstructing justice, you could wind up right beside him. Somebody told her, this is not ride or die, girl. This guy's going down, and you better bail and bail now. In interviews, Nicole came across as sweet and laid back, a Midwestern girl next door type. She's bright, too. She's a geologist and the kind of girl who likes to kick back with a beer while taking in a sports game. She can hang with the guys. She shies away from drama to a guy like Chris, who by others' accounts felt bogged down with family obligations. Maybe Nicole seemed like a fun departure from his reality. According to Nicole, she officially met Chris in June of 2018. She worked at his oil company in the environmental department, when one day he strolled into her office to formally introduce himself. Nicole says she was struck by his good looks. He wasn't wearing a wedding ring, so she didn't see the harm in getting to know him. When they began to flirt, she didn't see the harm in that either. In her mind, they were two single, attractive, available people. From the beginning, Chris wanted Nicole, and he seemed to have no problem with telling her outright lies in order to keep her interested and to keep up the charade that he was a real catch and a great guy. Nicole was unable to believe her good luck. There's a handsome guy at work with a winning smile and a sweet personality, and he is actively pursuing her. She says she hesitated because he was, in his words, newly separated. But she liked him enough that she pushed those feelings aside. The mutual attraction between them was clear. The two had a lot in common and, well, they just hit it off, in Nicole's words. They bonded over sports and cars. They laughed together. Nicole hadn't planned on falling for someone at the office, but she found herself very drawn to Chris. Malignant narcissists can be charming. That's how they get away with the part that they do get away with. Con man. We use that term a lot, but we don't remember what it's short for. Confidence man. Con man is short for confidence man. They come in with a lot of confidence. They win your confidence. And once 
they exude confidence and win your confidence, that's when they pick you like a chicken. Nicole described Chris as an introvert. He was always so soft-spoken and fairly quiet. But that didn't bother Nicole. Chris often told her he felt like he could open up to her in a way that he just couldn't with anyone else. He made her feel special. That she understood him while others didn't, and Nicole appreciated that he was a good listener. Chris seemed to think everything Nicole said was interesting. He cared about her thoughts and her feelings. During their relationship, Nicole told police she never once saw him lose his temper. He seemed to her like he was an even-keeled guy. Sensitive, even. He didn't mention he had children at first. When Chris eventually did tell Nicole he was the father of two little girls, well, she thought it was sweet. He mentioned Bella and Celeste to Nicole because they were talking about Father's Day plans. Nicole didn't mind that Chris hadn't disclosed he was a father before. They were taking things slow, she said, and while Nicole hoped to eventually meet Bella and Celeste, she figured they had plenty of time. According to Nicole, Chris and his wife, Shannon, were really both on the same page. They both wanted to split up. They were just figuring out the finances and how to share custody. Until all that was worked out, Nicole claims that she wasn't in any rush to push herself into the girls' lives. Before long, Chris and Nicole were spending a lot of time together outside of work. They went to dinner, bars. And while Nicole maintains that their relationship did not turn physical until early July of that year, still, this was clearly a case of a married man courting a woman, whining her and dining her, all while his pregnant wife remained utterly clueless about what he was up to. Chris used gift cards from his oil company to take Nicole out. He knew better than to leave a paper trail. They would go out, but Chris and Nicole spent most of their private time in her apartment. Shockingly, Chris did bring Nicole to the family home he shared with Shannon and his children on more than one occasion. Clearly, never when his family was home, of course, but it still shows Chris's level of bravado. He was actually bringing in this mistress to his marital home. Nicole told police she didn't feel right about being in Chris's family home. It felt like stepping into a stranger's life, she said. She said she didn't feel like she had a right to be there. She was even helping Chris, or so she thought, look for a potential apartment, places for him to move into. Of course, any time she actually suggested an apartment or a new area of town for Chris to move to, well, he just got busy and never followed up. If you were to look at photos of Chris and Nicole during the affair, you'd probably think you were looking at a happy, carefree couple newly in love. There are photos of them outdoor, giving the camera matching wide smiles, their arms wrapped around each other. In one photo, Chris is kissing Nicole on the cheek while she smiles serenely with her eyes closed. 
When Chris first wooed his wife, Shannon, she told her friends and family that he had made her feel like she had found her Prince Charming. Now it seemed like Chris had worked that same so-called magic on Nicole. Now this blossoming romance between Nicole and Chris ended, according to Nicole, as soon as she saw him on camera in that now infamous television interview standing on his front porch and pleading for the safe return of his family. She claimed that in that moment, she knew in her bones that something did not feel right and that Chris, at the very least, knew more about Shannon and the girl's disappearance than he was letting on. As if that interview wasn't alarming enough for her, Nicole says she found out for the very first time from a newspaper article that Shannon was pregnant. She says she was shocked. She thought Chris was in the final stages of divorce proceedings. On June 11th, right around the time Chris and Nicole were embarking on their new romance, Shannon excitedly posted about the news of her pregnancy on her Facebook page, wearing a t-shirt that spelled out, Oops, we did it again. When Nicole talked to investigators, she admitted that she herself doubted Chris's desire to divorce Shannon. During one visit to Chris's house, Nicole told police she saw a photo of Shannon with Bella and Celeste. And she was struck by how beautiful Shannon was. She said it dawned on her that Chris was a man who had everything, a pretty wife, a great house, and perfect children. And she just had to ponder, why was he so willing to give that up? She inquired about that, but he was adamant that his marriage was beyond hope. He was done. Both of them were. And he now wanted to be with Nicole. She says he never wavered from his statement that his relationship with his wife was purely contractual and that he was no longer in love with her. So why had Chris fallen out of love? Well, she says Chris wasn't exactly eager to talk about Shannon, but he would answer questions about the relationship when she asked. One of his main issues with Shannon, and Nicole told this to the cops, was her out-of-control spending habit. Yes, they had a nice spacious house, but Chris claimed they were housebroke. And that the lifestyle Shannon was having them lead left them constantly trying to keep their head above water financially, that it wasn't going to be possible to keep up. He said she was bossy, that he wasn't heard by her. In police interviews, Nicole recounts that she felt for Chris because, according to him, he had put the effort in trying to make the relationship better, but Shannon had made up her mind. She just didn't want to try anymore. Now, of course, we know that that was not true. She was desperate to keep her marriage afloat. The thought that Chris was no longer in love with her gnawed at her constantly. But telling Nicole that Shannon had been the one to check out of this marriage made Chris look more sympathetic. And what do we know about Chris? He's got to be the hero. He's got to have the moral high ground. He's got to have the admiration. 
He's got to be the center of attention. When I'm taking a look at this relationship between Nicole and Chris, it's easy to see that it's built on lies. That's a shoddy foundation. I've said before that when you believe someone's lies, you just power them up. It can be intoxicating for a liar. They're getting away with deceit. That only encourages, enables them to continue to manipulate the person who believes them. I've often talked about baiters. And baiters is a concept that I've put together that stands for backstabbers, abusers, imposters, takers, exploiters, and reckless. When you look at Chris's behavior leading up to the murder of his family, you're looking at the classic baiter. He's doing a constant double shift of conning two women. He's got the pregnant wife at home that he's leading one life with, and he's got the woman on the side who he's telling so many lies, it's probably hard for him to even keep track of his mistruths. Baiters have an awful lot in common with narcissists. They're arrogant and entitled. They lack empathy. They just don't have the capacity to feel remorse and guilt. They're irresponsible. They do self-destructive things. They thrive on drama, and they brag about outsmarting people. They'll tell you how they conned the last person they were with, not realizing you're thinking, my God, if they'll do it with me, they'll do it to me. If they'll stand here and brag about conning somebody else, they'll go stand with somebody else bragging about conning me. They tend to have short-term relationships because nothing ever lasts because they live in a fantasy world that's full of delusions. And when a baiter, narcissist, finds himself between a rock and a hard place, they're always going to default to screw you and hooray for me. It's selfish. It can be extreme. In his case, it's murder. I mentioned it before, you cannot help but draw parallels between Chris Watts and the Scott Peterson case. When Scott Peterson began an affair with a massage therapist named Amber Fry, he told her that his wife Lacey had passed away. In reality, she was very much alive and nearly due to give birth to their first child, a son. Now, Lacey Peterson went missing in 2002. This was back when social media was in its infancy. Facebook wasn't even invented till 04. You could still theoretically get away with completely fabricating critical details about your life. You could lead a double life like Scott did for a time. You could tell somebody that your partner had completely left you, abandoned you, or even passed away because there wouldn't be somewhere to go look them up. There wouldn't be pictures around. Now, Chris didn't claim that his wife had passed, but he did lie and tell his mistress that he was getting a divorce. In both instances, Scott and Chris, their wives had no idea that the men they said their vows to and laid next to at night were telling their new conquest that their wives were already in the rearview mirror. Eventually, both men had to figure out a way to make the lies they had been telling 
true. Now I've been talking about the similarities between Scott Peterson and Chris Watts. And someone else saw those similarities as well. And that someone was Nicole. When Amber Fry, who was involved with Scott Peterson, found out Lacey Peterson was missing and came forward, she became the unlikely hero of that story. Like Amber, Nicole's story was helpful to police. But here's the question. Was she as innocent as she claimed? Or did she too have something to hide? After Chris's family disappeared, Nicole made some very troubling and suspicious moves that had people wondering if there was more than meets the eye to this mistress. Chris Watts makes a second shocking confession from behind bars. Will he finally reveal what he really did to his family? And it's the answer to that question that defines where we're going to start next week on The Devil Beside Me. The Chris Watts story. Husband, father, killer. You've been listening to Mysteries and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil. And I am Dr. Phil.